Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. For tuning into this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Rabbi Daniel Cohen. He's the author of What Will They Say About You When You're Gone? There's a moment in all of our lives when we experience a wake-up call. We've all had moments when a death or a near miss or a sudden change of luck jolts us into different perspectives. And these flashes of insight, referred to by Rabbi Cohen as inner earthquakes, we know the essence of a life well lived. We understand what matters and remember the things that are most important and valuable to us. Certainly a book for the coronavirus Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me today. I appreciate it. You are a rabbi, and you are located in Connecticut, right? Yes, Stanford, Connecticut. Yeah, weren't you? Uh, weren't you one of the first groups that was like quarantined? weren't Was that your we were, congregation? Actually, yes. I mean, it wasn't necessarily Stanford, but really close by. There's a community called New Rochelle, New York. Um, where actually our stepbrother um, was part of the first kind of community that was quarantined. One of their members uh, got the virus. Thank God he's better. But uh, this area has become the epicenter of uh, the spread of the virus and, you know, praying for a lot of healing for people during this time. Yeah, I'm sure many people are, are feeling that need for healing and many, you know, don't know. I mean, in this age of the kind of spiritual, not religious. So, so many people, I think, often uh, are desiring to have a place for that hope and healing and, and connection, and, and it, it can be hard to find when you when you don't have a concrete kind of community that that grounds you in that, right? Definitely. I mean, one of the things that I've told people, but even more important today, is don't listen to the news so much. It just fills your head with negativity, and obviously, they're looking for ways to create anxiety and fear. Um, but the reality is, is that um, I believe, uh, I'm sure many do, that miracles can happen anytime. It's important not to lose faith. And also the power of community, I think, helps people. There's been so many ways, even though we've been physically isolated, to stay spiritually and virtually connected that have given people a sense of uh, not only hope, but a lot of support during this period of time. Yeah, why, why, why do you think people should not watch the news? Well, I'm not saying just turn it off totally. But I would say if you look, for example, at the headlines in the first five minutes, 99% of it is negative. And the truth is, is that when we fill our minds with negative thoughts, that really affects uh, what our mindset is. That's why prayer is important, too. Gratitude is important. Whether you're a believer or not, just to have a practice of um, gratitude, counting your blessings. When you do positive things for people, it creates a real sense of uplift in your soul. So you know, my recommendation is, is we can't control what happens outside of us, but we can't control how we see the world around us. And the more that we can do that, it really is helpful, not only for us, but for those around us. I, I had a guest on the show a while back, AJ Jacobs, who wrote The Year of Living Biblically, mm-hmm. and a fascinating journalist, but he wrote a book called Thanks a Thousand about gratitude. And in, the, in it, he says, gratitude is just like chicken soup for the psychological soul. Like everything we know research-wise about it, right, is shows that it really has this 
therapeutic, incredibly powerful therapeutic effect. It does. Um, you know, I oftentimes tell my kids, and I believe it, that um, you know, everybody, again, regardless of your faith, has something inside of us that wants uh, wants meaning, wants purpose, wants to be uplifted. And uh, when we verbally express a sense of other centeredness and uh, gratitude, um, it just really lights us up and makes us more appreciative. And you know, there's so many small things that we take for granted. I think that's what this opportunity and this time has really made us aware of that the small blessings in our life are things that are worth cherishing. Those that are closest to us, our family, our health, just simply taking a breath. I mean, there are people right now, thousands of them, that can't take a breath in and out on their own. We actually, it says in Psalms that we thank God for every breath that we take. And when we meditate on that, it definitely uh, gives us a sense of the appreciation of uh, every moment of our lives. Yeah, I mean, that that's a beautiful image of the, the beauty of breath. And again, in the age of like, where we're scrambling for ventilators, I'm yeah, I'm struck by by that image of the power of of, of breathing and breath. I, I'm interested, like, how is your community dealing with? I mean, because I, I think it's it's interesting because when we talk about prayer, I mean, it, Judaism has an approach to prayer that's different than some other traditions. I mean, you you really shouldn't pray alone, right? <laughs> and you're kind of wow. on a daily prayer kind of structures. You want to you you need a group of people, and so I wonder is that is that has that become challenging? I mean, what what's the effect been on the community? Well, I think it's fascinating. It's kind of been a bit of a wake-up call for people. It is true. We believe very much so in the significance of bringing people together in prayer. We believe that when you create a uh, horizontal highway between people, it expands the vertical highway to God. And we're very much focused on bringing people together. But look, the model of prayer is at the very beginning of the book of Samuel. It was Hannah, Hannah. She prays for a child. And she is the model of prayer. And the deepest prayers sometimes happen when we're feeling a sense of vulnerability and we're all alone. And I would say try to educate people to say whether you're on your own or we have done virtual prayer groups, by the way. Um, God listens to prayers wherever you are, wherever it comes from, even if it's on your own. And, um, you know, we've definitely had to, I would say, change the paradigm a little bit. We have a lot of people that are used to going to synagogue three times a day or every Saturday um, but giving people a sense of comfort, I think your point's well taken, that God hears our prayers in the place that we're at um, is a very uh, important uh, foundation of, uh, of belief. Cardinal Dolan, the you know, Ar- Archbishop of, of New York City, said in his sermon that you know, an, a, an older woman wrote to him, I, I kind of like this virtual mass, t- mass stuff because I can have a Bloody Mary while I'm at Mass. And he said, come on, Mom, that's not how it's supposed to work. Yeah. <laughs> But I wonder, you know, you know, I wonder yeah. that if it will change. I mean, I wonder how many how many serv- religious communities now are going to utilize online stuff more than they would have before. I mean, now everybody has to do it, right? But before, I mean, a vast majority of congregations didn't do anything like that. You know, Christian, Jewish, anybody, nobody was utilizing. Very few people congregations were utilizing this kind of stuff, right? Very little. I mean, I was on the phone yesterday. A good friend of mine. I have a. a a radio show with a fellow named Greg Dahl, who is a uh, Presbyterian minister in uh, New Canaan, actually in Darien. And he was saying, we both, that there are more people right now that are praying due to the virtual uh, opportunities that we're giving them, more people that are studying now than ever before. And even when we get back to, you might say, business as usual, we can't help but continue those uh, opportunities to connect with as many people as possible. People that are not in our physical location are joining in now. So it definitely has opened up our eyes to the blessings in the technology that we have 
to try to expand uh, growth, prayer. And one other point is we have seen an extraordinary exponential rise in acts of kindness during this time. People are feeling a sense of shared humanity. And um, it's really been uh, inspiring to see how people who don't know each other, but have that sense that I'm here to help you, have come uh, and risen to the occasion to uh, support each other. Yeah, isn't that the ironic thing that, that a t- in a time where people probably feel most isolated from themselves, right? People feel disconnected. People are feeling that as if they're, you know, I, I mean, people are just, I mean, the, the emotional toll of not being able to touch people or connect, you know, and yet the, there's been this strange outpouring of connection amidst the disconnection. I mean, it's the agony, the ecstasy, maybe. It's a weird kind of dynamic. Yeah. Look, I think that, um, you know, I don't know what well, Shakespeare said, right? Um, absence, or, I don't know if he said it or not, but, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. You know, we don't oftentimes appreciate the power of a connection, a social connection when we don't, when we have it, we take it for granted. And um, this has definitely awoken people to the need that we have for that connection. And I think also raise people's awareness for what are the connections that are truly most important in my life. You know, we sometimes could be sitting in the same house, connecting with people thousands of miles away, but forgetting about the people that are sitting across the table from us at dinner. And this, I hope, has awoken people even to the need to spend more time with those that are potentially, I believe, the ones that are most cherished uh, to us. Um, But it's also, look, go ahead. I was just going to ask, what's been the biggest, hardest question you've gotten from a congregant or or somebody in your community that that, that during this time that's really struck you as, you know, what's the deepest challenges you've heard people are expressing? Uh, Some of the deepest challenges have related to issues of death and dying. I mean, we've had a number of people that have died, older people, and the notion of not being there, I'm sure you've read about it. How many? How many corona deaths directly? I mean, not, thank God, in our community, maybe uh, three or four. It's not like we've had dozens. We have had people. That's, that's still a lot. I mean, that's... It, uh, yeah, no question. No question about it. We have a number of people that have been on ventilators, and actually, thank God, one got off of the ventilator yesterday, another got off the ventilator today. Um, but that notion of, you know it pains them not to be present with somebody when they're in the ICU and guiding them through that. And for that matter, uh, not being able to be, you know, at a, with a funeral with the the people that they want to be there. I mean, I don't have answers for people, but what I do try to say is, look, God is going to be with you. I'll guide you one step at a time. You know, there are ways uh, for people to feel God's presence, even as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And those have been the most I would say both painful conversations, but sometimes the most comforting when people uh, are able to open up their eyes to God, even in unconventional ways. It's interesting, too, that so much of, of, of late modern life, right, is premised on control, on the sense that we're in control and that we, and we can control our environment. We can control this. We control our futures. We can plan out our 401ks. We can do it. And yet, and when something like this happens, right, you all of a sudden are so aware of so little right, is in your control, right? I mean, it, it is, you know, it is that we are, we are bereft of control. And, and oftentimes, we're just as out of control as we are right now. Yet, there, we just have illusory things, right, that can, that can paper over it. And we can feel like we're in control of our lives. But crises like this, because right, we realize we're, we're not, we're never in control. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's something that I've thought about it. I'm sure, I don't know if you know with my brother, but um, 
we lost her mom from a brain aneurysm when she was 44 years old. And for us, I mean, you know, life was good. I'm a college student. I was uh, at my grandparents in Florida without a care in the world, like most people. And I got the worst phone call of my life that my mother had an aneurysm. She had a second aneurysm. And within 48 hours, she died. And I learned in that instant that life can change in an instant. We're not entitled to anything. And there, by the grace of God, go I. And when I got to the same age as my mom, uh, when she was 44, I always thought she was young. It just renewed within me a sense of um, the fragility of life. And that ultimately, you know, there's a great mystic who said, the whole world is a narrow bridge. And the most important thing is not only not to be afraid, but not to create fear within yourself. And just to do the best that you can every day with the life that God has given you. We can't change the past and worrying about the future isn't going to get us anywhere. But you're right. I mean, this time hopefully awakens us to, uh, I would say, maximizing uh, the gift. That's all we have is the present in this moment. I was a part of an organization once. I was being trained. uh, It was a group that was doing work with spiritual and religious work with young people on college campuses. And in the training talk, this guy said, so I want you to imagine being at your funeral and imagine what you're hoping is said about you. And he said, that's your vision for your life. That's your legacy. And you, you've written a book with this same t- concept. It's, it's it, it exactly at the heart of your book. What yeah. will they say about you when you're gone creating a life of legacy, right? And this is, I mean, it's interesting because it, it seems like your book is probably relevant now more than ever because people have so much time to think about, you know, the things that you talk in the book about, that this four quadrants, right? The, 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 the important and urgent, the unimportant and not urgent that, you know, the, 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 but the one quadrant that often gets thrown aside is the stuff that's important, but not urgent mm-hmm. with stuff that's, that's incredibly significant and important for your life. And the things that are the things that make the most soulful, full, passionate life. And yet they're the first things, right. That can get crowded out thinking about who, who you are, not just what you do, but, but who you are and who you want to be. Yeah, I mean, I think you've hit it on the head. I mean, what I talked about it a little bit in the book um, with what I would call the uh, September 12th phenomenon. You know, nobody wants to repeat September 11th, but on September 12th, people forgot about partisan divide. <clears throat> they thought about really what was truly important in their life. And, you know, the premise of the book is you're at a funeral, you walk out of the funeral, and you have a moment when you do say to yourself, I hope they speak about me the way they spoke about that person. And, you know, we're inspired for about 15 minutes to focus on what's really important in our lives. And then we go back to business as usual. So the concept behind the book, and I do believe it's more relevant than ever, is helping people identify which they can do during this period of time. What is your best self? What is the kind of life that you want to lead? And then I take people on a journey of seven principles to reverse engineer their lives so they lead the lives now for how they want to be remembered. I wonder how do you avoid a kind of, I think so much of like where human life flourishes is, is where we have grace for ourselves. We're self-acceptance, right? And I, I think oftentimes where life becomes this pressure cooker that sort of sucks the, 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 the juices out of us is when we sort of uh, have expectations of ourselves that we're always on the expectation train and we can never get to self-acceptance. So I wonder how do you have this determination for purpose and yet have grace with yourself so that it doesn't lead to less self-acceptance, but more because you you can imagine like this kind of ideal version of yourself that you want. And then you start, it leads to sort of just feeling worse about yourself uh, rather than finding your true self. Um, I think that what you're raising is something that um, is definitely a challenge. You know, when somebody 
obviously is trying to identify what their best self is. Um, and sometimes it could become a little bit depressing when you get through and you say, this is the kind of person that I want to be. And how am I ever going to achieve that? But I think one of the ideas to always remember, number one, is that when we wake up in the morning, I'm a big believer. So, uh, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I truly believe that God is saying, I love you. I care about you where you're at right now with the gifts and blessings that I've given you. God is not looking to us to be perfect. He's just asking us to be the best that we can be and make one step forward every day. And I think recognizing that life is a journey, it's not, you know, it's not the destination, as they would say. I don't need to achieve X to be successful. If I'm doing the best that I can to try to grow personally, to try to do one act of kindness every day, to think about how I can be more soulful and present, I'm making progress. So, um, you know, we live in a world where sometimes things are defined by end results. But in this book, and I think God is asking us just to be as aligned as you can every day and be forgiving of yourself. I think that's also true. You know, it's so important for us to accept who we are and not try to define ourselves by who we're not or by somebody else. And when you do that um, and realize when you wake up in the morning, God is saying, I believe in you. It helps you believe in yourself as well. Yeah, I think of this concept, you know, Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer in the 16th century said, you know, that we're simo justus et peccato, right? In Latin, we're, we're at the same time always sinners and saints. And, and you know, so that, that, that and, and being able to like see that duality is not Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or some sort of stuff, but this thing, that, hey, you know, that, that we have to love the whole self, right? We, we the, and, and, so, and the broken parts of us, sometimes it's, it's the broken parts of us that actually make us whole and, and learning yeah. how to live with it, with the broken hurting parts and less than perfect stuff that actually can, can help us live into deep purpose. Yeah. I don't think it was, I don't know if it was Leonard Bernstein who talked about, you know, that you let the light go in through the cracks. You yeah. Know, this yeah, idea yeah, that, yeah. 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 You know, and um, it is through that brokenness. I mean that, you know, it's the struggle which moves us outside our comfort zone into our growth zone that actually provides us the greatest fulfillment in life. Yeah, no one likes a memoir meaning. that's like, there's no great memoirs. You're like, oh, I, I, got, I got all A's. It was great. <laughs> it was perfect. Got, uh, good college degree from Harvard. Check. Uh, married the prom queen. Check. There we go. Exactly. CEO, 40. Check, check, check. Like no one reads that. Like it's not, you know, there's right. not, it's, it's usually the Sturm and Drang, right? It's the thing where like the memoirs we tend to read are the ones where somebody actually... Right, right, right. There's, you know, like I, I, it's almost like you don't, it, like you don't trust anybody that doesn't walk with a little bit of a limp, right? You know, because <laughs> this, because this life is, you know, we're born into, you know, uh, we're all sort of broken people, and you know, being, you start your life in the human condition, parented by broken people, and they were parented by broken people. They're married to broken people. You know, we like that. Th- this sort of our fragility is part of what I love. What you said about the light. You know, it's it's where the where the light comes in through the cracks, and I think there's something about that, right? That makes you probably when you accept that more open to exactly what you're talking about in the book. When you're actually open to your fragility and 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 the the good, the bad, and the ugly, the whole particular uh, beautiful mess that is you, right? Then yeah. you're probably more open to these deeper reflective practices and conversations you talk about in the book because you're there's actually it, it takes the wrong kind of pressure off. Look, and I think also one of the things, the counter of this that I try to emphasize is that one light um, can ignite so many flames. You know, one of the ideas, it says at the very beginning of the book of Genesis that the world is created in darkness and chaos and disorder. And that kind of describes a lot of our lives sometimes. There's chaos, there's disorder, there's darkness, there's challenges. 
But then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And all you need is one dark room and somebody brings in one candle and that candle can illuminate an entire person's life. And so I really try to inspire people and think to myself, what's one light that I can light today? Don't go in a room and say, you know, what can somebody else do for me? But is there somebody's today's life that I can ignite virtually, personally, you know, tell them thank you, you know, for what they did in my life. And you're going to find, we'll all find that our lives are so much more rich and, and inspired that way. Yeah, I, I think that's true. You talk about in the book, find your Elijah moment. This is the great yeah. prophet, right? Who we, you know, who we always leave a seat open for at the, you know, at the, uh, at the Sarah table. Why, why the Elijah moment? What, what well, is, by the what, way, Elijah, what, to see, you know, he was not a quarantine. He came to everybody's uh, Passover Seder. Virtually, right. He could be virtually. Everywhere. He was there. <laughs> it's like Santa Claus. He could be everywhere. He was all over the place. Uh, but Elijah is a prophet who's kind of known as somebody who would come. It says actually the end of the scriptures that the day will come when Elijah will kind of herald a great day. And it relates to an idea in Judaism that Elijah is one who kind of helps people. And there's a beautiful story um, about Elijah where somebody asked a mystic, I want to see Elijah the prophet. And the person said, go to a widow's house in the forest and bring her food for the weekend, and you'll see Elijah the prophet. So he goes there Friday night, Saturday, no Elijah. Sunday comes, still no Elijah. And he goes to the um, mystic and says, you promised me I'd see Elijah the prophet. So he says, go back the next week, bring food, and uh, you'll see Elijah. Friday afternoon comes, he goes deep into the forest. He's within earshot of the home, and he hears a child crying out to the mother, saying, mommy, where is the food going to come from this Sabbath? And the mother turns to the child and says, just like Elijah came last week, Elijah's going to come again. And it was in that moment that he realized that he was the Elijah that this woman was waiting for. Discovering the Elijah moment means that you may not be able to change the world, but each one of us can change the world of one person, and then we can make the world a much brighter place. So I talk and reflect in the book about how it's so important for us to see every encounter as divine that no moment is random. And if I can bring heaven down to earth and light up somebody's life in the simplest of ways, I can be that Elijah for that person and our lives will be so much more meaningful. Yeah. And Martin Buber, right? The great Jewish thinker talks about, you know, the I thou experience where we want the, mm. this I and thou versus, you know, where, where I see you and you see me and we recognize each other's humanity versus like so much of our late modern life, right? Is lived in I it moments. Right, like we're 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 either, we're either making somebody feel like an it, like they're 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 kind of a you know a cog in the machine, or we're their cog in the machine, right? Like we're we have these interactions that are that are they're, that often are dehumanizing, right? And so I think in, in in the context of late modern life, there's nothing more powerful than that Elijah moment, that I thou moment, where somebody feels not just help but humanized, right? Yeah, you really see the, as I say, you know, I don't know if, who said it, the face of God in another human being. Um, you know, it's a beautiful story somebody shared with me when I asked them what are the most inspiring moments. And the woman said, I was at a supermarket, and as I got out of my car, I saw an elderly man with orthopedic shoes, and I saw that he had trouble getting his shoes on. And I went over to him and asked if I could tie his shoes. And as she bent down, she said, that was one of the most um, moving moments of my entire life. And I told her, because in that moment, you were the person that that individual needed. And he was not just another being. He was another soul that needed her light. And Mark Twain said, the two most important days of your life are the day when you're born and the day when you understand why. And those opportunities are endless. A woman said to me, she, her husband was in um, the hospital and she said her husband 
couldn't do much. But his mission was whenever somebody left the room, whether it was a nurse, a caretaker, a superintendent, a doctor, they always left more upbeat than when they came in the room. And he said he was there to try to create as many positive feelings. And that room became a holy room because of all the positive energy that he put out there. Now, were you, are you, have you been Joe Lieberman's rabbi? Yeah. Do I have that right? You do have, have that, that right? right? He grew yeah, up in that, our synagogue. So he's been a long time member really since the beginning of his life. What a, a remarkable figure because, you know, somebody that took my Orthodox Jewish observance so seriously in public life as a senator. I mean, it's not, I mean, I'm sure it's not, it wasn't easy, uh, you know, to a lot of pressures on the job. And, and, and yeah, you know, when he's talked about Sabbath keeping the power from this stuff, it seemed, it seems when he talks about it, it's more liberating than confining for him. Yeah. I think he always felt, and, um, you know, I thank God I got to know him a lot better when I became the rabbi of the synagogue here, but unlike most that saw Sabbath as a burden for him, uh, it was truly liberating because it allowed him to stay true to his values and also to create the sacred space for his family. Um, you know, as they say, there's a phrase from Achad Am, a philosopher, that said, more than the Jew has kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath has kept the Jew. And he was, you know, obviously had huge pressures on him, but the Sabbath for him was always kind of an anchor um, in his life, not only for his family, but also, you know, he's a person who I would say really tried to stay true to his principles. It's very difficult in the political world um, not to make decisions out of um, convenience, but to make them out of conviction, not to follow pressure, but to follow principle. And yeah, he was a free, a free thinker. He was a real free thinker. I mean, an unusual in American political life, especially now when everybody seems so tribal and everybody seems to just toe various party lines. He was a guy that didn't mind bucking with his party establishment, want to have it become an independent, uh, you know, because of his own convictions and, and his friendship with John McCain. There's just, I, you don't generally see people like that in public, in public life very often right now. No, I mean, you know, he said when I spoke to him for the book that he always felt it was important. He wants to be remembered, you know, for doing what's right, even for things that weren't always easy to do. And um, he really uh, lived it. And I think that's part of, I would say, the challenge in the world today, that there's so much a focus on uh, what's expedient. He truly believed, and we still talk, that the highest audience for him is an audience of one, which is God. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that was something that, uh, you know, pulsates within him and in his family. I know you, you've spent, it sounds like a decent amount of time with, with Christians and Christian clergy, you do this radio show. And you, is there something that you like from that tradition, you look at it and, and we're like, and they're like, gosh, I wish we could borrow that. Just get a little bit of that, a little bit of that juice and throw it in, you know, the juice, the juice. It's funny. My friend, Greg Dahl says he envies our Sabbath because it's really, we turn things off in a way that Sunday has not, unable to do. I would say that when I think about the church life, I mean, the church is so far advanced when it comes to, um, I would say, uh, levels of engagement. And I'm a big Rick Warren fan, the purpose-driven church, in terms of really appreciating how you move people from, uh, you know, Saddleback Sam into core members and then giving back. And the sophistication of the way churches are run to help people reveal their inner talents um, and then give back. And um, the organizational structure is something that I've learned a lot from, and I try to bring into our synagogue in a broader way, but um, there's a lot there to uh, emulate, I believe. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because one of the things I think I've, as somebody who is in the Christian tradition, one of the things I've learned from Judaism is like 
allowing some tension between believing and belonging so that so that so that you, you can you know oftentimes in certain kind of christian circles it, it, once you don't believe or once you were you're struck with kind of the dark night of the soul or you're going through doubts and struggles you're kind of seen as sort of less a part of the tribe and i think it, it seems that judaism does a better job at, at allowing a little bit of space for that so that so that you could still be fully part of the tribe and yet not know everything you believe all the time that you could, that can evolve and be open, open-ended. That's a very, uh, uh, a great point. I mean, Judaism believes very strongly that action outweighs belief. And even if you may not be there, we all have moments of faith and doubt. Just do something positive. And Judaism says you become part of the community. You are part of the community. And I agree with you. You know, one of the things that we say in the morning in our prayers is God, the soul that you've given me is pure. There's not a sense that I'm obviously born into sin, but it's pure. And whether or not right now I'm observing everything, I'm on the right path, that I'm starting in the right uh, direction. So there's definitely an allowance, I would say, for that tension to exist. And something we struggle with, by the way. I think too often, even within the Jewish community, there's um, too many divisions based upon observance and not enough of an appreciation that we're all part of the same uh, community. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a beautiful... And maybe, you know, maybe in this time of Corona, those differences i find a lot of the differences are becoming uh you know a little you know they're taking they're being relativized a little bit i mean we're still i mean a partisan tribal kind of moment but there's at least some signs of hope that people in the midst of this this virus that's that that is i mean it's you know it, it just seems like we're in such a disoriented moment i was reading today that like there are all these instances in south korea where people are testing positive after they've had it really so it's yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. The, the people that have had it and recovered, and they've test, retested them, and they've they've got it. It's it's still you know it's 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 recovered. So these kinds of things, like again, the, the nature of this virus just seems so disorienting, and yet maybe in that disorientation is where again we get oriented, like you're saying, to be more gracious with each other and be more understanding across traditions and within your own tradition and across political aisles and things like that. I mean, maybe that's one of the you know hopeful things that could come about. I believe it. I mean, I think that, again, I I would never say, and I said this and I gave a talk about a week and a half ago, nobody knows why. But I do believe that God is trying to get our attention to say, you know what, maybe there's been too much of a focus on me, accumulation, you're moving too fast. You know, just think about who you are. And again, we're all children of, of the same creator. We're all created in the image of God. And if we can I would say rise to see that in each other and sustain that and grow that. I think this is kind of a moment of pause for the world, and hopefully through that, many more blessings will be revealed. I mean, there's no question here that um, there are a lot of resources in the world, and they need to be shared. And look, when it comes to the virus, it doesn't make a difference whether you're left or right, Democrat, Republican, communist, socialist, or whatever. You know, we we all here to try to heal the world. And the more that we can uh, work together to do that, the better the world will be. Yeah, I'm wondering, one of the things I've been thinking about, and I'm doing some live streams and things and talking about these things, I I wonder, do you think moving forward to heal from this? Because it's a trauma, it's a traumatic event Mm -hmm. for for the world, for the country. I wonder, you know, because right now we're having this kind of conversation that is, is really, you know, important. I mean, we're talking about human flourishing and well-being and how do we eradicate this virus and yet do it in a way that doesn't where the where the where this where the solution you know where the cures isn't worse than the disease we wind up in a depression and we wind up where people are you know like debilitated and 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 i and i, I th- it's not a simple 
point. I mean, I think it's, I mean, we want to do everything we can for public health. And yet, you know, we also, people need to eat and and (laughs) there needs to be a world to go back to. And I wonder, do you you think it would calm people's spiritual and psychological anxieties if we had more of a way to talk about this together? Because I feel like you're, there's not a shared conversation about this really, right? I mean, it's not, it's not like we're really talking this through in meaningful ways as a, as a public, we're kind of, you know, we've got experts telling us what to do and we're listening to them because they're experts. Uh, and yet then there are people that are, you know, on the economic side that are like, Hey, we got to reopen the country. And, and, and it feels like there's not a lot of space for, for like the kind of public discourse where we could all sort of, you know, count the costs together. I mean, I remember hearing Malcolm Gladwell say that, you know, what, what we did in Canada with healthcare is what you've Americans never done. We got together and said, Okay, this is what we're willing to to accept and not accept, and mm-hmm. so we developed a complete healthcare system where we said, you know, we'll 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 give on this end for this end. We'll give a little bit on a wait time so that everybody can get covered and things like this. And I just wonder is 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 it? Do you think the fact that we don't have a way to to have a shared kind of collective conversation about it, where we can at take that common good action by discerning, like, okay, what what? How do we balance out? you know, the public health needs with the needs of just the general society and, 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 you know, not being in a depression for two years or somebody or three, you know, and I, and I just, I don't know the answers to these things. I don't know, but it seems to me if we're, if we're, if we don't have the space for public conversation, what I worry about is that it will make people feel even more debilitated and, and more angry and more tribal. Um, ideally, the space for this conversation should take place at the government level with people that can actually talk to each other uh, and have that dialogue. And I think your point is well taken is that unless you really ask somebody what they're willing to give up in a meaningful way, and we don't like back into our own corners, it's going to be very hard to have that conversation. The climate in Washington has been so uh, partisan and um, uh, poisonous that it's hard to have that meaningful conversation. You know, somebody made a point today in the news that, okay, Dr. Fauci or whoever, the scientists have their facts, but the scientists shouldn't be making policy for the entire country. That's what the politicians should be doing with the facts of the economy, with the facts of health, to say, what is the price that we're willing to pay, you know, on both sides and have that conversation. And then- Right. right. And we, and, and, and we, and if we're an elected, if we're in a representative democracy, that, that we, the people have to- yeah, take responsibility for that. The, the, here are the options, you know, and you know, there's got to be shared sacrifice, and you know, let people and be straight with people. To me, that's really important. You know, these are the costs, these are the benefits. Let's try to come up with a solution. There's no perfect solution here, but I agree with you that having the conversation would, in a um, nonpartisan way, um, would be something that would actually be beneficial, and that itself would be healing for the congregation. For the community, um, and I right, think right. It, it, would help, it would help us find our own purpose. Like, like I think it's right along with the idea of your book, right? That if if we have a meaningful conversation about this, it's one of these things that actually I think would help the country find its purpose more. That it, we would become more centered as a country because we actually have the conversation about what. Yeah, exactly. What are we willing to sacrifice? Why and for how long? Um, you know what? It's interesting. One of the chapters of the book, I talk about courageous choices. And to a certain degree, this is a courageous choice. You know, what's the decision that we're willing to make that's reflective of our values? But then I say there, if you don't know what your values are, and you're just making decisions hastily based on what this guy is saying and that guy is saying, then you're not going to make a, a courageous decision. You'll make it based upon the highest bidder. And I think you're 100% correct. This is an opportunity to take a start. What are our values? 
And then once we can clarify and have that conversation, what is our purpose? What is our values? Then we can look at the current situation through that prism and hopefully find a, a decision. Yeah, because, because, yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. Because the pro- I think the partisanship right, and the tribalism have taken us away from purposeful conversation and discovery of conviction because you just sign up for whatever the team says, right? And, you know, you, you, it's funny because I found this study that was saying, you know, after Trump got elected, Democrats thought worse of Russia than they had before. And Republicans felt better about Russia, right? And likewise, (laughs) Democrats started to feel better about the NFL and Republicans felt worse about the NFL. Like, you know, just because it's like team try. It's okay, well, this is my team, you know, and and, and these are just like, you know, well, Colin uh, Kaepernick is kneeling, whatever. Okay, well, then we like the NFL because they they don't like Trump. And it's just these kinds of like that kind of climate politically and culturally, right? That's just toxic. I mean, because it, it, it you can never have a purposeful reflective moment where you could then make courageous decisions because you're just reflect, we're just reacting. Yeah. You know, one of the exercises that somebody said is most helpful is pretend that the person who you disagree with is part of your family. How would you respond if this was your brother? And, you know, God says to Abraham at the very beginning, which is not a Jewish idea, but a, a, a divine idea through you should be blessed. He doesn't say all the nations of the world. He says all the families, we're all family. And if we can get that through our head and say, you know what, I'm not going to dig for the dirt, but I'm going to mine for the gold. I don't agree with everything that you say, but it doesn't mean I diminish you. Then we can maybe move in a better direction. Well, I'll tell you, your book and your preaching and and your own um, uh, life is helping in that direction, I think. So I'm appreciative of your work and appreciative of you spending some time talking with me about it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.